This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Carol, we need to set this agenda because it's on, a man. robust one. Come, Come on, on, man. man. Let's set the agenda. All right. Michael McKee is with us. Love catching up with him. International economics and policy correspondent for You know Bloomberg. we're going to do that a lot. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Everything is just going to end in man for yeah. a while here. Yeah. A lot of T-shirts being made out there. Uh, so, Michael McKee, what's on your radar today? Because I feel like in the midst of all the politics shifting to policy, you had a big interview to help us understand where the Fed is thinking, what the Fed is thinking about, because they have been at the fore of trying to get us out of this mess. Yeah, and nobody uh, is talking about it, though, because we didn't scream at each other. I <laughs> <laughs> had a civil conversation. Come on, Mike. Oh, I, Michael, I'm also on, wondering if, if you say, come on, man, if you're talking to Carol, do you say, come on, woman? <laughs> or is it just generic? I think it's a generic sort of yeah. like, come, just come on, man. Come on, come on man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, talk thank to, you, Mike, for that. Talk to Tom Barkin. He's the president of the Richmond Fed. And uh, we got his – he's going to be a voter next year. So he will be watching what's going on closely in the economy and uh, got his idea of where he thinks we are right now. And he's a little more optimistic than most of the Fed officials I've spoken to about how fast growth is coming back. But he's still concerned that we're going to get to a point where it's just going to be really hard to get that last little bit back. I look at more level than growth rates. And so I do think then the question is going to be, what do we look like year over year? And I still think, you know, by the end of the fourth quarter this year, we'll still be down year over year, and it'll be hard to get back to where we were until sometime around the end of next year. Yeah, we've, we've picked the low-hanging fruit, in other words, and mm. we've seen the big, the V part. Now it kind of levels off until uh, some of the companies that maybe disappear start getting replaced. You know, Mike, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I was thinking about it um, while I was watching the debate, and they did get into the economy specifically. I mean, listen, Nobody knew this pandemic was coming, and right, the economic impact is like the financial crisis. These are things, as a, a leader, you unfortunately in many ways inherit because it's just kind of what comes at you. But at the same time, when you look at the White House's economic policies, what they've done so far, far Congress as well, you know, and what they maybe need to do going forward. I mean, do you feel like they've done the right things? Have they set the economy on a right track for 2021 or not even close. They did the right thing originally, and you give credit to the, the members of Congress, particularly Nancy Pelosi, and then to Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, because they negotiated the CARES Act, mm -hmm. which did a lot to keep the economy afloat and set the stage for the fairly fast rebound off the bottom. But that's all expiring now. And of course, we're waiting to, to see if they come up with anything today to save thirty to 50,000 airline employees jobs tomorrow. Uh, so we could really see a, another fall off if they don't come up with something additional. And so what 2021 is going to look like will depend a lot on what Congress does. Now, if the polls are correct and Joe Biden wins the presidency and the Democrats take the Senate 
you're probably going to see stimulus come out fairly early in 2021, but it would mean still that it's pushed back until the end of the year, as Tom Barkin is talking about. So, Mike, do you buy into this notion of the K-shaped recovery? It was sort of alluded to last night in some of the comments especially made uh, by Vice President Biden. Does the data, do the data support that? And how does that inform potential policy going forward? And how does it inform the fact that we haven't had any more stimulus so far? Well, I think I, I would definitely say we are seeing a K-shaped recovery, but I want to separate that out from the debate about whether it would be a V or a W or something like that, because uh, with those analogies, we're talking about the speed of the recovery. With the K-shaped recovery, what people are talking about is sort of two different recoveries. It's things are going up and getting better for those at the top of the income education job scale, and for those at the bottom, things are not getting any better, maybe getting worse, because now unemployment insurance is starting to run out and the bonus insurance uh, is gone. So those who are in the lower economic stratum were the first ones fired. They have the job, the service industry jobs that got closed down. Uh, they're the ones who are most in danger of being evicted and the eviction moratoriums in many places have gone away. So for a lot of people at the lower end, we're not seeing any kind of improvement. And you can see that in, you, you asked about the data, uh, uh, black unemployment reached 5.7%, an all-time low in February. And now it is over 13 percent and so overall unemployment has come down a lot but not so much for minorities and uh, unemployment I don't have the number right in front of me but I remember it's very high for people say without college degrees so uh, there is definitely a bifurcated recovery going on yeah that's a good distinction thank you for for pointing that out I that's that's really something we need to to think about going forward is that the W and the V are really about the the speed and and the K is sort of more about the contours of it. Michael McKee, always good to talk to you. International Economics and Policy Correspondent for Bloomberg. Congrats on that uh, timely interview as well, Carol. Come on, man. That was great stuff. Come on, man. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. (laughs) We love Mike McKee. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We want to get right to it because, hey, Jason, I'm not sure if you noticed, but there was a U.S. presidential debate last night. In Good fact, Lord, there was. the first one. Uh, more to come before the November election, 33 days away. Uh, a quiet event, it was not. Check this out, uh, a little snippet in case you missed. Vote and let your senators know how you strongly you feel. Let, vote now. You pack Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you that because question? the question is, the question is, the question is, yeah, it's the line heard around the world. Joe Biden last night with President Donald Trump at that debate. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno. She's back with us uh, from New Rochelle, New York, up in Westchester. Jeannie, so great to have you here with us. Heard a little bit of your conversation with David Weston uh, earlier today on Bloomberg Radio. Um, what was that debate? <laughs> well, what I keep saying is I'm I'm starting to refer to it less as a debate and more as a brawl because um, yeah. I think debate sort of uh, doesn't define what we saw last night. I think like so many people, you know, it's something I don't think any of us expected, something we haven't heard of, you know, uh, seen and historically. And I'm understanding that Bloomberg is now reporting that the Presidential Debate Commission has just come out and said that they are going to change the format for the next two debates to avoid a repeat of that. And so I think that will be welcome news to many people because those are 
October 15th and October 22nd. So I think that is welcome news. I don't know yet what that entails, but they I did see that report come across um, from Bloomberg News. So um, last night it was a lot of fighting, a lot of yelling, a lot of interrupting, a lot of name-calling, and a little bit of substance, but not quite as much as, as most of us would have hoped for. Yeah. So – as someone who's watched a lot of debates, and, and we all have in many ways, you watch it with a keener eye than, than we do. I, I do wonder, it's unprecedented, we use that word, we throw it around a lot, especially here in, in 2020. But I do wonder, as you were talking to your students, and I think Carol and I you know, both have very politically active teenagers and watched the debate with, with our teens, respectively. I, I wonder, as you talked to your students, what was their takeaway from it? Yeah, and and it's so fascinating to see it through the eyes of, I have an older teen as well, to see it through the eyes of these young people and particularly my students. And, you know, I'm hearing from them a little bit so far today. I'll hear more tomorrow. But for them, you know, they don't have the history that we have of having watched these things as adults, so they're coming to it fresh. Many of them, they're, you know, they were politically conscious during the Trump administration, maybe a little bit during the Obama administration, but they don't have much direct experience before that. And so it's fascinating to hear from many of them that they don't seem, at least in my estimation, I don't want to speak for all of them, quite as surprised as, say, I was last night to hear the back and forth and the vitriol and the the sort of biting language. Um, And I don't know if that speaks to the fact that they've lived through four years of the Trump administration, so they're getting used to this or what that means. But for many of them, I've heard that they weren't quite as surprised as I was by what happened last night. And I don't know if that's what you heard from your teens, but that's what I'm hearing so far. Well, what I do think is disappointing is this is supposed to be a place where we really get a better understanding of what these candidates who work for us, right? (laughs) We Americans work for us so that we get a better idea of what their White House and what their administration is going to look like. And we really got very little of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you know, I was thinking even in my own teenager who's an older teen is, you know, how do you make the case to a young person to treat people respectfully and to wait your turn and all of these things when the president of the United States and and the challengers aren't doing that. So I think it does make it harder. And to your point, um, you know, this is where I I felt a little guilty, I have to say, last night, encouraging my students to watch that and sort of subjecting them to that. But, of course, it is what what is out there. Um, And so, you know, we didn't get a lot of substance. And I think as I look back at it, and I've had, you know, a few hours to process it, I think a lot of it has to do with how we structure our system. And I think if we think about it in that respect and less about it from the perspective of, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden's personality and their personal way of doing things, we can put it a little bit more in perspective. And what I mean by that is, of course, as an incumbent who is trailing, Donald Trump came to this debate with a specific agenda. My view on it is that he pushed a little harder than his campaign wanted him to. We know that from Chris Christie, who defined him as too hot. Um, I think had he done a little bit of what he did to get his opponent off kilter but not quite gone as far, it would have been a very different conversation today. I have to say I was surprised that Christie weighed in that way. I would have thought even if he thought that way, he wouldn't have said that. Yeah, I was was actually surprised, too. But, you know, I don't think how any thinking person, even somebody who supports Donald Trump and likes his policies and and 
feels he's done a good job, could look at that debate and not describe him as, you know, very, very aggressive and overhyped or hot, as Chris Christie said. So on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, I think it's a really honest response. even if you like the president. Just 30 seconds, though. Is it, though, then a sign that some Republicans, like, supportive, but then also distancing from Trump, just quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's not unlike the tweets, right? We like what he's done. We don't like how he comes across. Jeannie, I I have to ask you, because it was a moment that I think anyone who was watching even mildly closely gasped when, when we heard it, which was the president's refusal to disavow white supremacists and then taking it a step further And essentially, by all accounts, just if you listen to it, if you read it, um, speaking directly to a noted white supremacist violent group in the Proud Boys. What did you make of that? Yeah, it was quite stunning. It was um, Chris Wallace had asked him um, point blank if he would disavow, as you mentioned, white supremacist. And so it was a very easy question, you would assume, for the president to say absolutely and to disavow them. But what he did instead was he pivoted and he told this this violent group, this far-right violent group, the Proud Boys, to stand back and stand by, which we know subsequently they have been celebrating um, in so- on social media. So it, it was quite, I think, a stunning moment, and I think what many people are describing as one of the lowest moments of of, an, of a really difficult debate. And and um, I, I do think that, you know, you, you at all had talked before the break about the impact on the suburbs. It's a perfect example of how the president has this tendency to play to a base and not to reach out to the people he needs to reach out to in order to win again in 2020 in the way he did in 2016, because Comments like that do not play with the suburbs and the moderate voters there who he won in 2016, but who have abandoned him this time around, according to the polls. Now he's down 12 points from where he was then. And those comments play exactly in the opposite direction. So even strategically and politically, it was stunning to me because it made no sense for him personally or politically. So playing to what you just said, two things, the midterms, do they tell us about what President Trump needs to do this time around in terms of the election? And secondly, Jason brought up on our planning call um, the poll that came out by 538 and their forecasting model, and they put out that Joe Biden's chances of winning the Electoral College rose to 78.4% from 77.9% on September 29th, uh, predicting he's going to win 352 of 538 electoral votes. Um, Listen, we were fooled big time by polls back in 2016. So midterms, polls, how do you make sense of them? Well, in terms of the midterm, I think, you know, the reason that Democrats took the House was because women in the suburbs in particular backed Democratic candidates over Republicans by almost 20 percent. You know, and you look in 2016 and the president, President Trump, was able to make up some of that difference to get five points in the suburbs. He needs to do that again if he has any hope of winning states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Florida must win states for him. And the reason there must win is for the reason you just mentioned, because we have an electoral college. And so if he is going to win this election, there is almost no chance he wins the popular vote at this point, you know, and barring some major shift in the next 30 days. He still very much, I believe, can win the Electoral College, but he is going to have to sweep those difficult states, and he's going to have to do that by appealing to white women in the suburbs, seniors, 
college educated and pulling over enough of them over. And that's exactly why I think last night was such a disaster for the president, because he didn't play to his strong suit, the economy. He didn't express empathy about COVID, and he didn't do basic things like denounce white supremacy. All of those things would have pulled, could have helped him pull over those much-needed voters. And so I think his campaign has to be very, very frustrated today. He is dominating the conversation today, though. I just thought about our conversation, and we barely talked about Joe Biden, which was kind of interesting. Absolutely. And that is a great point, as he always does. He doesn't want to give up that microphone for a second. Right, right, regardless of what he's saying into it. All right, Jeannie Zeno, thank you so much. Always great great to catch up with you. As soon as it was all over, I knew we were going to talk to you today, and I thought I just can't wait to get into that conversation. So thank you for delivering, as always, political contributor for Bloomberg, professor of political science at Iona College. Can't wait to see what her students continue to say about this, because I do think generationally we are at a fascinating moment here and you and I are fortunate to have very politically active and engaged teens and having those conversations it it really it's very telling you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio all right so we know both U.S. presidential candidates they did talk a bit they squeezed in some things about their plans for the U.S. economy last night at the debate the details did get a little bit lost in all of that bickering and as we know and as we look around the country different states are faring very differently when it comes to the pandemic's impact in today's Business Week economics Bloomberg opinion columnist Connor Sen writes about all of this and specifically why New York is in a depression and Texas is not. He joins us on the phone in Atlanta. Connor, great to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, Yeah, it really depends on where you live, what you've seen and had to deal with in regards to the virus and the impact on the economy and how you've bounced back. Right. So the thought that we had coming out of the spring was that to get your economy back on track, you had to control the virus. And there was a time when that looked like it was the case because you saw in southern states like where I am in Georgia and Arizona and Texas that they had this big flare up in the virus in June and July and their economy sort of retreated after trying to reopen. But what we saw in the August unemployment data is that we're really starting to see big dispersions between the unemployment rate in places like the Northeast and then the unemployment rates down here, where we've bounced back very quickly in the South, whereas the Northeast is still really struggling. And so break that down for us. I mean, how do you account for it? And how did you go about sort of putting putting the numbers? And it's both anecdotal and data-driven uh, based on your column. So what did you see? Uh, help us understand it. Well, I think to sort of take any kind of cultural bias out of it, you could say, well, what industries are really struggling versus what are doing well? And the industries that are doing well are things like construction. I've just seen housing bounce back very quickly, sort of logistics and e-commerce fulfillment. So jobs like uh, driving and and those sorts of things. And so, you know, that's where, you know, where people build houses are are tend to do better. And then you see on the other side what's really struggling and it's dining and leisure and air travel and hotels like that. And so that, that hurts places like New York, but also places like Nevada and Hawaii, which have you know, casinos and, and sort of that sort of thing. So it's really kind of a function of what industries are doing well and then what is your local economy tied to. Yeah, totally. I got to say, you know, one thing that resonated um, with Jason and me as we read through your columns, you know, you finish off the one about New York versus Texas and you talk about, you know, here's just another sign of, you know, the K-shaped recovery that we're seeing, right, which you can apply in so many different ways. We've had Peter Atwater of William & Mary on who coined it, 
you know, noted it, has put it out there. But it is kind of a reminder of how we continue as we move along and away from the pandemic that we're all, you know, having different experiences. And it's a reminder of just kind of some of the differences in terms of what builds an economy in different areas of the country. Right. And you've sort of sort of certain in-person activities, which maybe can come back in a half-hearted way where yeah. maybe some people go to Disney World and some people eat indoors. But things like business travel and conventions probably need a, a much more robust virus response than we're likely to get over the next few months. All right. So let's shift to last night's debate and the talk of the economy that whoever the next president is going to be, whoever is in the Oval Office over the next four years, what he will inherit. Um, Because as Carol mentioned, there was, uh, shall we say, a lot of back and forth (laughs) last night about many issues, including the economy and some credit taken, maybe fairly or unfairly, by both men in in terms of the economies that they have overseen as Vice President uh, Biden accounted for his time uh, working with President Obama and then, of course, President Trump more recently. What do you make of the economy on the other side of this election? I think this sort of gets to that K-shaped recovery dynamic where some things are doing incredibly well, like housing is almost off the charts good, which, you know, is we keep seeing it, even though it kind of boggles, uh, you know, sort of how we think about things. And then things like, you know, sort of restaurant and bar employment is, is terrible or commercial real estate in New York City is, is really struggling right now. And so I think maybe one way to sort of strip out all the noise and say, well, how do people feel about things? Our measures of consumer confidence. And so we get the Bloomberg Weekly reading on Thursdays and then the conference board puts out a reading once a month. And those are saying that right now confidence on average is about where it was at the end of 2016. And so maybe that's sort of a way of averaging out sort of the weak employment numbers with the fact that the housing market's doing very well and households have more home equity and 401k balances than they probably ever have in history. And so I think if you sort of think about, well, what's that going to look like in a few months? Employment's probably still going to be struggling, but households are going to be feeling better, at least, you know, certain ones with home ownership and home equity. And, and so in the aggregate, things aren't quite as bad as maybe the employment picture would suggest. Does it matter? Right. Okay. So if it's not like 2009, I think that's fair to say. Um, does it matter then who's in the White House in terms of economic policies or what we get more in terms of or what we get from you know Congress in terms of more aid, the trajectory for the economy into 2021? Well, I'd say there are a couple pieces to that. First is sort of who's going to be just better for growth. And that maybe is, you know, you'd say, well, if we have low interest rates and low inflation, then spending has a very low cost. And so maybe who's likely to do more spending? And that might be Joe Biden. And then you also could say, well, what places are hurting the most? Sort of take it the sort of GDP aspect out of it and just the, the human suffering. And we really have this sort of natural disaster type effect where, you know, it's not a Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, but sort of any restaurant employee or business nationwide is struggling. Small businesses are struggling. And so, you know, maybe more of a targeted aid package for those, you know, state and local governments with their budgets are struggling for those parts of the economy that are still struggling. But we might not need a multi-trillion dollar relief package the way we might have thought a couple months ago. And so, Connor, just to wrap up here, only got about a minute to go. If there was one thing that could push through Congress at this moment from a fiscal perspective, what should it be? I would say state and local aid just because, you know, the trains need to run. We need teachers and police officers and and just the the nuts and bolts of government to sort of get us back on track. And we don't want to see budget cuts from state governments. So if we could really, you know, fix those balance sheets, that would really help a lot going into next year. 
All right. Well, we really appreciate it. The moment that that first column hit about uh, the K-shaped recovery and how it looks different in New York and Texas, we knew we had to get you on. And then yeah. you delivered this other column. So just so many reasons uh, to check in with you down in Atlanta. Connor Sen, thank you so much, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, check out everything he writes. It is a must-read to understand a lot of the economic nuances, candidly, uh, of everything that's going on out there. Because as much as the debate uh, – characterize things as very binary and very much about one choice or another, Carol, we know it's more complicated than that. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right. As we get to the close of trading here on a Wednesday, it's been a funky day and a day of trading that has very closely tracked sentiment around more fiscal stimulus on Capitol Hill. There was a, yay, we're going to get a deal. Looks like we're going to get a deal. And then a womp, womp, womp. As it looks increasingly less likely, the major indices have traded down. Let's understand what's underneath that and more, especially less than 40 days, 34 days, I believe we are from the presidential election at this point. George Young is with us. He is down in New Orleans, partner portfolio manager with Villery Funds. George, really nice to have you with us. Great. Good to be back. How's life in New Orleans? It's pretty good. We've got a beautiful day, 72 degrees. And wow. Blue sky. We haven't had that for a couple of weeks, so we're yeah. happy to be here. Everything's good. Everything's yeah. good. How does the virus feel down there at, at this point in terms of everyday life? And, I mean, I know um, LSU football has been affected uh, in, in some ways, but right. tourism, like, how does the city right feel? Now. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to talk about it. That was a, that was a tough loss for Coach O. But um, – how does the city feel? Because, you know, it's based largely on tourism, but also, you right. know, a vibrant commercial area, too. Well, one thing that's important is everybody knows us from Mardi Gras, and that's usually good, but that was probably the spike in the virus right yeah. there in mid-February. So we felt our, our blows a little bit early, but we're slowly reopening, and um, I think things feel feel pretty good here. We had a hurricane, you might be aware, in Lake Charles, uh, about 150 miles west of here, but um, things are good in New Orleans at the moment. So um, I'm going to remain optimistic. How about yeah. that? All right. How is it to be a fund manager right now? Uh, well, at this moment, it's good. This is a big contrast from six months ago. That was not fun to be a fund manager. But back in March, it wasn't fun to be anything, I think. Yeah. Uh, but right now, no, we're looking good. And as, as everybody knows, all your listeners know, since the uh, uh, end of March, we've the market has done incredibly well and maybe somewhat surprising. And that might be a a good topic right there is where are we going from here because we tend to think things are a little fully valued and we're taking a couple of chips off the table. We're optimistic long term, but if you don't sell them when they're up, you can't buy them when they're down. That old aphorism says. Well, but tell me a little bit about your performance because I'm looking at um, the fund and it looks like it's down about 4.5% so far this year. And I mean, depending on the right. index you look at, um, being a balanced portfolio, um, what strategy has worked for you? Which ones do you regret right now? 
Sure, that's easy. Uh, I regret that we didn't buy the FANG stocks at this moment in time, but I've got to look ahead and I've got to look at valuation. So if you think about it, growth stocks are up about 22% for the year. Value stocks, that's more where we like to buy, uh, are down about 10%. So that disparity is huge. And again, we're talking about now a nine-month period. So it's, it's getting a little long in the tooth for this discrepancy. And there's always a rotation within the stock market. Some stocks are popular. Some some stocks aren't, and uh, this is another aphorism: stocks are seldom cheap and popular at the same time. So you want to make sure, as I said before, if something's overvalued, sell it. And everybody's hesitant to pay tax, but sometimes stocks need to be sold, and then you have the cash to buy other things that are deemed cheap. So let's talk some names. You know that we love talking uh, about specific companies and specific issues. Uh, what do you like out there right now as you look across, uh, the, especially the small and mid-cap world, which I know is where you like to play? Sure. Well, there's one that stands out, eHealth, and that is a play on the Medicare supplement world. And everybody turning 65 is very familiar with Medicare, but they're also familiar with the fact they need to get a supplement to make their coverage complete. There are 10,000 Americans turning 65 every day, and as a newly minted 62-year-old, I'm, I'm bringing that into focus. And this is a great area for uh, eHealth to focus on because they've got about a 27% market share at the moment, and they think they can increase that over the next three years to something like 50%. So we're very excited about that. Uh, it's a, a given market that they understand. They know how to work well in marketing it both through telephone and through electronic sales, um, and, and they, they, they understand how to get people to sign up. So it's it's an important uh, uh, difference between their competitors. So when, but, oh, so go ahead, Jason. Well, I was just going to say, just following on that briefly, if I could, George. You know, when you think about eHealth and names like that, that are you know subject or or tied to kind of the the regulatory regime when it comes to healthcare. Um, you know, amid all the fussing and fighting last night, we did hear some discussion about. Uh, healthcare and, and where it may go from here, we could see something, we are seeing something before the Supreme Court. How much sort of risk is there in getting deep into the healthcare uh, sector at this point? How do you pick your spots? Well, we bought it six months ago, uh, excuse me, about a year ago, and we bought it because it looked like Elizabeth Warren might be the contender, mm. and uh, that was going to be a problem for Medicare and, of course, for eHealth. And um, obviously, she's not the nominee, but that's the reason we bought it. So we are sensitive to the political scene. I think at the end of the day, uh, Medicare is a good, proven system that people depend on. And uh, it's not overly expensive relative to the benefits you get. So it's something that we like because it's sort of a, 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 an approachable market that's fully understood. And we think this stock is not fully valued, so that's why we've been buying it. Hey, one thing I want to ask you about healthcare. I mean, one of the discussions Jason and I keep having with um, people in the medical community is this whole idea of preventive health, that we are really thinking about this as a result of the virus, knowing that if you're healthier, your ability to fight things um, and fend off things are going to be significantly better than those who don't aren't in those situations. Are you starting to think about health in that way rather than it's just everybody needs health care or people are old and they're going to need lots of health care? Do you think about it differently? Well, we do a little bit. Um, back in March, April, we looked, we thought the market was undervalued. We said, what are the few things that we think are going to dominate going forward? So one of the things that we bought, one of the stocks we bought was Stryker. Mm-hmm. And Stryker is, is a company that, that maybe many of your audience know of because they deal with hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder replacements, things that 
aren't emergency, but they are going to have to be dealt with at some point. Well, nobody was going to get any of that done in April, May, June, July. But now, in the last few months, orthopedic surgeons are busy again. People who have put off those necessary surgeries, I'll call them, are coming back in to get them done. So Stryker's been a great uh, a great stock, great performer, and one that I think will continue to do well as people come back into the surgery rooms. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, George Young. Nice to catch up with you, Partner Portfolio Manager at Villery Funds. Joining us on the phone from New Orleans, here's hoping that LSU uh, continues to turn around. Go Tigers, as uh, Coach O would say. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 